Turn with me in your New Testament to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at three uh, sequential paragraphs, verses 8 to 11, 12 to 20, and then 21 to 31. Oh, uh, Galatians chapter 4, and then there are three subsequential paragraphs that we're going to look at this morning. We come, before we read the text, we come to one of the dearest sections in Paul's letter to the Galatians. He now addresses them as friends. He'll do that again in verse 10 of chapter 5 and in verse 1 of chapter 6, expressing to these people he calls his friends that he's afraid that the work that he's done will be compromised. He'll actually, in the paragraph, as we're going to see in a minute, he'll go beyond the friendship language and he'll actually say, my dear children, and he desires to return and visit them again so that he can change the tone of the conversation that we've seen in the letter up till now. This is one of the dearest sections because, as you'll remember, this is the one letter that Paul wrote where there's no personal introduction, there's no grand prayer. There's no specific goodbye at the end. This is a letter that underscored how astonished Paul was that they had deserted the one who called them to grace in God. He called them foolish. He actually said, you've been bewitched. They had been running well. But who prevented progress, Paul pleads with them. And he even goes so far, and we'll see this in chapter 5, where he will say to his opposition, I wish that you would castrate yourselves. So we're in that pivotal section where Paul is pouring out his heart to his readers. But this section includes one of the most difficult paragraphs in all of Paul's writings, dare I say, strange. What I'd like to do this morning is go paragraph by paragraph. We'll read it. I'll give a couple of insights into the passage. And then I want to build the bridge. Because the so what this morning comes right out of the three paragraphs. Now, we've entitled this section Two Covenants. And, and it is about two covenants. But it is ultimately a plea from Paul to his Galatian listeners, to his sisters and brothers in Galatia, to choose freedom, not to regress into slavery. Now, now, let me just begin with two very preliminary reflections here. Uh, the timeline that we looked at right from the very beginning about where this letter fits in gets a little bit clearer. You'll remember that uh, when I spoke out of Galatians chapter 1, I talked about how the timeline is a little hard to put together. We know that Paul was converted around 33 after Jesus Christ. And we know that he then had an experience in the Arabian desert. He comes back to Jerusalem, gets his mandate, does his first missionary journey, and then comes back to Antioch around 48, 49. So about 16 years after his conversion. But when he returns to Antioch, three startling things happen. The first, 
is the confrontation he had with Peter and Barnabas in chapter 2. The second, when he had to go to Jerusalem with Barnabas to establish the convention, the, the, the prescription under which the churches would live to allow non-Jews to come into the family of faith. But he then seems to make mention of this letter and how troubling what was going on in Galatia was having. And so all of this fits in that period and probably explains why Paul was so unsettled by what was going on amongst those churches he had planted in the first trip. And now he's pleading with them, don't go back to Egypt. Now you'll remember that from chapter 3, Paul began by saying, how foolish you are. Who bewitched you? He asks them five questions, then establishes that going right back to Abraham, God's plan for human history turned around not the Torah. Oh, yes, it's good. Yes, it's spiritual. But all it does is it creates the way for sin. What is the key is what Abraham did. He lived by faith. And God gave his spirit. And it's by faith that a new humanity was formed. And we saw that last week at the end of chapter 3. But now, come, now Paul comes to his very personal plea. Okay, let's look at chapter 4 and verse 12. Formerly. Now what I want you to notice is that the text is bounded by two time words. The first is here, formerly, at the end of the paragraph, I'll draw your attention to it in a few minutes, so then, okay, so there's a time factor here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am afraid that my work for you has been wasted. And you hear Paul's pleadings in this first paragraph. I think when you look at verse 8, you can actually see that Paul is going back and summarizing what he said in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And then when he comes to verse 9, talks about knowing God but being known by God, he's really summarizing verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. So really, 8 and 9 just cover the same territory. And then he says to them, how can you turn back, and he uses this expression, elemental spirits. How can you go back to things in verse 8 that aren't gods. How can you turn to these things which are weak and beggarly? I mean, the language is ferocious. Now, the word that he uses here is part of what we call the semantic field around words like principalities, powers, authorities, supremacies, counter-beliefs, and Paul uses this word here. But I think he defines it in this text by making reference to days, months, seasons, and years. And his Jewish audience would have caught what he was saying. 
days, like Sabbath. Months leading up to the celebrations. Seasons. Why, the whole Jewish calendar is around seasons. Years, like Jubilee. But his Gentile believers, friends, who had decided to follow Jesus and now were tempted to go to Judaism, they would have caught the image out of their pagan past. And now Paul is saying, all of those things that you followed before, they're nothing but nonsense gods. They're nothing but beggarly spirits. Why would you want to go back? And then he expresses his fear. I'm afraid that everything I did goes for want. And you hear his heart coming out. But the so what in this paragraph begs to be answered in verse 9 when he says, but you have known God or have been known by God. What is Paul getting at there? Okay, let's hold that thought for a minute. Okay, now let's come to verse 12. Second paragraph. Friends! He hasn't used that word since the very beginning of his epistle. Friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And now he explains how he became as they are. You've done me no wrong. You know that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. Though my condition put you to the test. You did not scorn or despise me. You welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What has become of the good you felt? For I testify that if it had been possible, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I become an enemy by telling you the truth? They, the opposition, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to exclude you so that you may make much of them. It's almost as if they want you to get back down on your knees and return to their point of view. It is good to be much, but for a good purpose. My little children. Okay, now Paul changes the image from friendship to the family. For whom I again am in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I were present with you and could change my tone for I am perplexed about you. And again, you hear Paul yearning for his brothers and sisters in the Galatian area. Now, obviously the friendship word is, is the key to the structure here. He's pleading with people who are his partners in the gospel and they're wandering away. And so he says, become as I am. Now, who was Paul? Well, it's Galatians 2, 19 and 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the love of God in Christ Jesus who gave himself for me. Do I despise the grace of God? He says, no, because I know that I have been acquitted. I've been justified by faith. He says, become as I am because I've become as you are. And, and, and this is the pain that he was feeling. And he was going back to his first visit. And 
the ink that has been poured out on what is actually Paul talking about here is endless. Is he talking about a potential problem he had with epilepsy? Maybe. Was he talking about the problem with his eyes, which continually comes up in his writing? Maybe. Uh, Were well, there in some conjecture that maybe during his trips he was going through areas where he caught malaria? And for those of us that go into the developing world and now make sure we take pills to combat malaria, you wouldn't want to get that. But, but it's all conjecture. We don't know. All Paul is saying, you identified with me when I was at the bottom of the barrel. Why would you want to go back from what you learned? And now Paul comes to the key in the whole passage. And in verse 19... He says, my dear children, for whom I go through the pains of childbirth till Christ be formed in you. And now Paul is taking on the motherly motif. In fact, he's actually using two motherly motifs here. He's saying, I feel like I am like a mother going through the travail, the travail, the, the, travail the, the, the effort. Now, not that Paul had any familiarity with that subject, but he was able to take that on himself. But then he says, until Christ be formed in you, and the word that he uses here in the passive, uh, past tense gives the idea that he's actually talking probably about the fetus being formed and what goes on to that. And Paul is saying, I feel like a mother watching the fetus taking form in the uterus and then giving birth to you. That's how I feel. And that's why I want to go back and change the tone of what I've been saying. And we get incredible identity with Paul, with his people, and then us as the readers with Paul. He's aching for them. And the so what in this paragraph comes right out of verse 19. What does it mean to go through the pains of childhood for Christ to be formed in us? Remember, it's a plural identity here. So now we come to the third paragraph. And now Paul, in the progress, following through in his argument, is going to use a very polemical argument to complete the whole section. Okay, let's listen to it. Tell me, you who desire to be subject to Torah, will you not listen to Torah? For it is written, Genesis chapter 21, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. One, the child of the slave, was born according to the flesh. The other child of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar from Mount Sinai. That's also where Torah came from. Bearing children for slavery. And it corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the other woman 
corresponds to the Jerusalem above, who is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and now Paul will quote from Isaiah 54. Rejoice, you children of the you rejoice, you childless one who bear no children. Burst into song and shout, you who endure no birth pangs. For the child of the desolate woman are more numerous than the child of the one who is married. Now, my dear friends, you are children of the promise like Isaac. But just at the time the child who was born according to the flesh persecuted the child who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her child. For the child of the slave will not share the inheritance with the child of the free woman. So then, my friends, again, we are children, not of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, as I said, this is one of the most difficult, I'll add, strangest paragraphs in the whole Pauline literature. But, but I think if you follow the argument, it makes perfect sense. Because... It's a concluding argument that Paul has given for people who believed that circumcision and food laws, the quote-unquote works of the Torah, were useful. And Paul called those people who wanted to get Gentiles, who decided to follow Jesus, to go that right. He's saying, those are the opposition. He talked about this in verses 17 and 18. He'll actually say in chapter 6, the only thing that motivates those people is to avoid persecution. And we looked at that at the beginning of Galatians. But now Paul is not framing the argument like he did in chapter 2. He's framing the argument around freedom and slavery. And he takes us back to those events with Sarah and Hagar in Genesis chapter 21. So think about it. You've got Ishmael with slavery, born according to the flesh, as opposed to Isaac, who was free, born of the promise. But now here comes the twist. Because it's not about the Old Testament against the New Testament. No, it's rather an older covenant. And the question is, will we go back to the promise which is appropriated by faith right in the heart of the Old Covenant. And so Paul is taking this story seriously. And so when he says it's an allegory, don't think here about um, Aesop's fables. Don't think here about um, uh, uh, any other sort of allegory you might have, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, for example. No, this is what we would call a Christian allegory, where the history counts, where the story actually happened. And so Paul is using that to talk to the church, to talk to those listeners in Galatia, and to talk to you and me. Because what Paul is saying in this allegory is the issue facing all of us is will we go back to the old boundary markers or will we actually believe in the true restoration of the Jerusalem on high through the seed of Jesus, which creates a whole new creation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, where in the seed of Jesus and the promise, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave or free, there is nor male and female. 
And Paul uses a quote right out of Isaiah, which talks about the free woman bringing the promise. And so now Paul is saying, you've got a choice. My heart is pleading for you. Become as I am because I became who you are. I want to change the tone, and the only way to change the tone is which way do you want to go? Do you want to go freedom, or do you want to go slavery? It's a stark reminder. So the three paragraphs. When you frame them that way, Paul's argument is deeply personal, and it's a clear choice. And so that leads us then this morning to the so what's. And uh, let's... Let's do all three paragraphs and answer the questions. So out of the first paragraph, 8 to 11, Paul makes that stunning comment. But now you know God, or better, you are known by God. And this text challenges us all to realize it's God who takes the initiative for us to know him to be known by him. I lead a small group uh, every other Monday morning at 7 o'clock. Three wonderful people. And um, we finished a a study in Colossians um, going through the fall. We finished it up just at the beginning of January. And on Zoom we were talking about, okay, what do we want to do next? This is a group that that loves to do Bible study. And um, in passing, we were talking about a couple of possible subjects, and I, and I, said, I said just in passing, I said, um, you know, there are times when I, when I really wish I had a better understanding about the heart of God. And one of the women in the group, Kathleen, said, that's it. We've got to study the heart of God. Now, of course, what that means is Glenn is going to put together a group, a study for us in different texts of the scripture that show us more about the heart of God, to which Glenn said, I will do part of the work. We will do this together. But here's what struck us in our first two studies. How much God desires to be known. And my friend, this text tells us how important it is to take that time every day to cultivate that personal, intimate relationship with the God who desires to be known But you can't read the New Testament and come to a conclusion that knowing God is about facts and about propositions. It's about the emotional response of the people of God to the God who desires to be known intimately. And so don't let the complexity of this passage slip by you. This text invites us to know emotionally and intimately the God who desires a personal relationship with his people. Well, and that leads then to the second so wet, and it, and it follows together. Because imagine, Paul moves from friendship language to motherly language. And he talks about going through the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, two thoughts come to mind in a practical way here. We're used to hearing Paul talk about us being in Christ. But now Paul is saying, Christ in you, vous, (laughs) in the plural. 
And so this text is really about Christ being formed in the church or in the churches. And so Christ is seen in us, not just us being participating in being in union with him. But, but here's the second thing that I think is fascinating with this metaphor about going through the pains of childbirth. Um, now again, um, like Paul, I have no personal experience with that apart from having watched my wife go through three of those childbirths with my three daughters and realizing this is unbelievable. Um, but you know, it, what strikes me is when it, we talk about being quote-unquote Christians, um, the New Testament uses some really interesting images for that. Um, Matthew uh, uses the image of being a disciple, a learner, uh, an apprentice, a student. But not an apprentice, a student, a, 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 a learner who learns, but one who follows the master. John will use the idea, the notion of believing and believing intimately. At the end of Colossians chapter 1, Paul will say, I exhort you, admonish you, I encourage you, I labor for this so that I might present you as an adult in Christ. Do you see what's going on? Matthew, John, Paul. Now he comes to this passage. The image of childbirth. And so, so much about what the New Testament says about the people of God is that these are people that have an intimate relationship with their creator and they learn, they follow, they believe intimately, they move towards adulthood because Christ is being formed amongst them. And this text is really a call to discipleship. And Paul is saying here, I go through these pains of childbirth because I want you to be Christ-like. I want you to have Christ amongst you. This is the passage that Martin Luther actually used to talk about the church as being little Christs. And he wasn't wrong. See, that's what Paul wanted to see in those churches in Galatia. And because we're now part of the correspondence, Paul is saying to us that the church labors so that the whole church becomes followers, adults, because they've gone through the birth pangs and the fetus comes to life and groans. This passage is a call to true discipleship. Now, I think the third, so what, is really in that really interesting allegory. Because the allegory forces us to say, okay, what are the boundary markers that we set up where we try to separate ourselves from others? Um, I'll just remind you again. Uh, go back and look at the PowerPoint that Louis gave us when we started in this book. And he named some boundary markers that we set up. And he challenged us to question those. Okay, Paul is doing it again through the allegory. And Paul is saying, Torah 
creates a horrible distinction. In fact, it's malicious because it only reveals sin. It's an elemental spirit. It has no life-giving power. What we got to go back to is faith animated by the spirit. And so this passage says that anytime we pick boundary markers that aren't faith animated by the Spirit in our life in Jesus is always going to get us into trouble. It's going to take us back to Egypt. It's going to take us back to slavery. And so in, in the context of what we've gone through over the last two years, in the context of what we've gone through this, uh, this week. As we think and pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, we need to think, what, what sort of boundaries are we setting up? What sort of markers are we setting up? Are we actually praying for people to be living by faith and animated by the Spirit? That's the marker. Now, Unfortunately, we got another one of those parts of uh, the New Testament, which for reasons that go beyond me, we decided to divide chapter 5 and verse 1 from chapter 4 and verse... Uh, would help if I was in Galatians, not Ephesians. Um, from, from verse 29. Because what does it say? Four, verse one. Okay, so the conjunction is critical here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Five one really goes with these three paragraphs. And this is the call. It's a call to freedom. But it's a call to freedom in Christ for us and for Christ to be in us as the church. And we were set free for that. Think about Paul saying that. It was for freedom that you were set free. And so, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to any boundary markers that don't come out of what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. So the so what's this morning? About developing that deep, intimate relationship with the God who's relational. Taking discipleship seriously and realizing that God in Christ goes through the pains of childhood to bring us to adulthood, to apprenticeship, to true belief. But, but also remembering that in the church, we, we don't dare go back to Egypt and create boundary markers that are not rooted by faith, animated by the Spirit. So that when it's all said and done, God and God alone gets all the credit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Jesus, and the written word, the Holy Scriptures. And by your spirit, um, the word is illuminated so that we can follow Jesus. And I pray for my sisters and brothers today that you would take them deeper in their intimate relationship with you.
that you would prompt in them a greater desire because together we've gone through the pains of childbirth and we are followers of you. But Father, help us to choose freedom. But we know that that's a freedom rooted by faith, animated by your spirit. But Lord, we dare not finish our service this morning without continuing in our intercession for Ukraine, for our sisters and brothers in that country, that they would be animated by you in the midst of this horrible situation.